Let's go to the Bible. If you're a guest with us, this is what we do. We sing and pray, and then we open the Bible. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. We're now in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to finish out the chapter today. So if you found it, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 7, we'll start in verse 20. It begins, uh, when I start reading, it's right in the middle of an argument. An argument, and what I mean is a defense. The preacher that wrote this is writing to his church that is in trouble, and he's writing in such a way to get their eyes up on Jesus. And the way he's doing that in chapter 7 is he uses an Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. He's held Melchizedek up as a type of Christ. Look there, he says. Now, in verse 20 to the end, he's going to really draw them down to focusing on Jesus. There is so much in this passage. In fact, there's some of it I'll, I'll, we'll just have to leave on the table I can see now why so many Puritan preachers would preach eight or ten sermons in chapter seven. I don't know why a preacher would just preach one. There's a lot there. We'll uh, dig out some of it in verse 20 to 28. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 20. <clears throat> and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one, that's Jesus, this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints the Son who has been made perfect forever. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would apply these truths to our hearts. That we might be filled with salvation joy. And that joy, the joy of the Lord, would be our strength. And so help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thursday afternoon, I was working on the passage, and John Stigmerton came by the office. We are sitting in my office talking about this passage right here, talking about the goodness of God in salvation. That's when John said, God saves us from the guttermost to the uttermost. <laughs> Which is absolutely true. And it seems to be the entire point that the writer of Hebrews is making. He's seeking to strengthen his people for all that they'll be dealing with. A church, 
And, and, and truthfully, it's what I want to do. I want to use this passage today. By God's grace, I want to use this passage today to strengthen you. As prices rise, as tempers flare, as morals fall, as pressure increases, we, we need to be strengthened in our souls. Now this passage, and I, there's lots I won't get to, but this passage is full of hope, it is full of joy, it is full of promise, it is full of stability for your life. Let's catch up in the context, just so we're all kind of on the same page here. So far in chapter 7, the writer, the preacher here, has um, he's been strengthening his people by holding up an Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. This figure in the Old Testament he uses as a type of Christ. Now he's using Melchizedek, look at him, and through Melchizedek see Christ. Now near the end of chapter 7, he lays Melchizedek aside and he joyfully brings Christ into full view. Because if you're not careful, brothers and sisters, if you're not careful, you find yourself minimizing your Christianity. Minimizing. You find yourself minimizing your Christianity and maximizing everything else. So that your identity, and we are in an age when identity, you are identified with something. If you're not careful, your identity can weigh heavy on your station in life, the school you go to, the kind of work that you do, or maybe your identity is wrapped up in a hobby, or, or maybe it's wrapped up in a in politics, or, or maybe it's wrapped up in where you're from, and it's easy in this world to make that your identity and your Christianity drop into the background. It's not going away, it's just in the background. And that was the danger that the people that are getting this for the first time, the danger was to drop that into the background so that that doesn't become the major part of how you are identified. And here in 2022, the world we live in has made it so that there is nowhere left to hide. If you believe this book, I mean, just a straightforward, plain reading. If you believe this book, if you believe the God who inspired this book, if you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you and possibly your family are on an absolute collision course with a world that hates the God of the Bible. Look, it was, it was like that for the people getting this. It was like that in ancient Rome, and it's like that in modern America. And we must find a way to live our lives right now with joy and contentment and hope. To live our lives with joy and courage and grace. I think this passage goes a long way to helping us. 
And I'll just say it like this. Rejoicing in the Lord makes you strong. Now, brothers and sisters, if you can learn to find your joy in the Lord, then you're going to be strong. Rejoicing in the Lord makes you strong. Several reasons to rejoice. Let's take a look at it and see if we can't pull out some reasons from this passage. Here's the first one. Number one, we need to rejoice in a promise kept. You and I need to think deeply and rejoice in the promise that God has made, the fact that He has kept His promise, that the God of the Bible, He is the original promise keeper. And in verse 20 and 21, join me there in verse 20 and 21, the preacher plays on that truth. Look how he compares, just <clears throat> look how he compares the priesthood of Christ to the broken down old way of where they came from. Let me read it to you, verse 20 21. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests, so the old way in Judaism, those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. It was passed down by family heredity. But this one, contrast, Jesus, this one was made a priest with an oath. What did God say? By the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and he will not, and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. And then the preacher quotes the Bible. Do you see what he's doing here? As a display, here's what God is doing to reassure his people. God has promised a Savior, and this writer quotes a thousand years earlier, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is a messianic psalm, a prophecy of a coming Jesus. And that psalm, written a thousand years back, was actually based on a story a thousand years prior in Genesis chapter 14. So what you have here, right here in this little passage, is a reminder of the storyline that the whole Bible, the whole Bible is the promise of God's story of redemption. What do we sing today? That I am redeemed. What is the story of the Bible? You can put it in categories if you want. You can write the categories down. The story goes like this. <clears throat> Creation. Fall, redemption, restoration, consummation. I'll go through them again. Creation. God created all things. Created All things were good. He created you in his image. That image of God in you is good. It's what gives you dignity. It's why we respect all people, because the image of God. That image of God, fall. Creation, fall. That image of God is disfigured because of our sin. Our original parents, Adam and Eve, fell in the garden. Their fall has affected us all the way up to this very moment where we are. Because we are sinners, we are separated from God. That is fall. Where is redemption? The story of the Bible is pointing to the coming one, Christ, who will redeem us. Jesus, the God-man, living perfectly in our place, going to the cross to take the punishment our sins deserve and giving us the righteousness that he earned by keeping the law. God raised him from the dead, and after redemption, there is restoration. Let's not forget, when we, are, when we are saved, it means our sins are taken away, and we are adopted children of God, redeemed, restored. 
Jesus ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to get his church. That's the consummation of the kingdom. The whole Bible tells the whole story. And you can rejoice that God has stamped his promise into the structure and nature of this book that Jesus Christ is the promise kept by God the Father. That God has promised, God has promised to save you, to sustain you, to keep you. One good way to strengthen your soul and to settle your mind is to think on the promises of God. You might want to take something like, maybe take something like uh, Psalm 23. A lot of people know the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. You could take that Psalm and start praying, the Lord is my shepherd, Father you are my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You can ask God for, for provision. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Lord, I need peace. He leads me beside the still waters. I need you to settle my soul. You can take line by line and pray that and claim that as a child of God. Or, or take the Lord's Prayer. Take it line by line. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Don't just run through it. Take each line and pray that as a child of God, claiming the promises of God. You and I need to rejoice in a promise kept. But not only that, I want you to see something else in verse 22. We need to rejoice. We need to rejoice in a debt, a debt paid. Look with me at the beauty of verse 22. It's a great verse. Verse 22, uh, the writer tells us that this makes Jesus the guarantor. Never see that word again in the Bible. A guarantor of a better covenant. Now, there's several things to uh, pull out in this verse. Let's just sort of go through it word for word. There are two, maybe three things to take a look at. The first one is Jesus. This makes Jesus. Here he comes lifting up the humanity. You don't hear the writer talk about the name Jesus very much. He's reminding us that there is a man, a perfect man. The God-man who has taken our place. Here is Christianity. The God-man taken our place and he has made a better. See the word better there in verse 22? Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. Jesus the guarantor. If we were reading this in Greek, it would the first two words, Jesus guarantor. But he's the guarantor of something, a better covenant. The whole book of Hebrews is reminding us that Jesus is better. Once again, right here in chapter 7, he goes back to work and says, Jesus is better than all that you're facing. He is the guarantor of a better deal, a better covenant. This covenant is not one that is based on you keeping the law, and if you keep the law, then you'll be blessed. This one is a covenant based on grace. Why? Because you and I are not able to keep the law of God. We can't, no matter how good of a person you might be, how nice of a young man you might be, we don't keep the law, we sin. We break God's law, we, we have wrong motives, we complain, we tell white lies, we cut corners. 
We eat too much and do too little. And, and we're not content. I mean, you just, there are a thousand ways that we would break the covenant. And the writer here is telling us that Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. You see, the God-man keeps the covenant for us. And then at the cross, takes our sin, grants us his righteousness so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but now are sons and daughters in Christ. Not only that, the preacher uses a word here that you'll not find anywhere else in the entire New Testament. I've just been, I've been looking at it all week long. He says that Jesus is our guarantor. What a great word. That Jesus, the God-man, he knows our need and he guarantees that all of our legal obligations, everything we have and are indebted to to God, he guarantees that our legal obligations are carried out as the guarantor. Some of you uh, that understand finances, you'll understand this word. As the guarantor, he has accepted all responsibility so that he might secure your commitment to God. As a guarantor, the, the co-signer. Man, don't ever co-sign for anybody. You'll, get hooked. You'll, you'll be on the hook for that. You understand what that means? Some of us have to find out the hard way. You co-sign. What that means is that if they can't pay it, you are on the hook for it. And here's what the preacher's saying. Jesus is the guarantor. The guarantor acts for someone who is incapable or incompetent to act for himself. Stands in the place. As, as the guarantor, he pledges to make good on your responsibility to God. Let that sink in now. Christianity is not just you deciding to be a better person. Christianity is that we have now tr we have trusted in the, in the goodness of Jesus who has been the better person for us. As the guarantor, he pledges to make good on your responsibility to God. So here's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. Okay, that's what we owe. And as the guarantor, he takes and pays for the death that we owe. Look, this is what God has done for us in Christ. This is what God has done for you if you are a Christian. This is what we believe. That, that, that God the Father is looking at his own poor, failing people who are unable to meet their obligations and Christ has agreed to undertake those obligations for us to fully pay off all the debts, to completely satisfy every demand at the cross, saying over your life, paid in full. Now you need to think deeply. You need to think deeply on the grace of God. You need to think deeply on the ocean 
of God's love and forgiveness that washes you clean and makes us free. Think about it. I mean, some of us know tangibly. Some of you, I mean, you lived through the recession in 08 and pray we're not going into another one. But some of you, you I mean, you know what it feels like to not be able to pay the bills coming in. To be up under a mountain of debt so much so that you feel enslaved, maybe to owe several hundred thousand dollars and know that you can't pay it. Now, multiply that feeling by infinity. Realize what your sin cost, and Jesus shows up and nails it to the cross. So what, this, is what, this is what Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14. Remember what he said? This is exactly what he meant that he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, and he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. There, there, is, there is no good reason that you shouldn't walk out of here today feeling lighter and happier and holier because you've put your faith in the one who died for you. We, we, we need to rejoice in the promise that God has kept. We, we also need to, I mean, what's going to make us strong as Christians? I don't think that, I don't think that you need for me to stand up here and tell, here are 10, here, here are 10 ways you're going to help you be a better husband. or Here are 10 ways to get along with, with your children better. That don't come from. No, what's going to make you strong is when you rejoice in the debt that has been paid. It's a beautiful verse. Verse 23 is a beautiful verse. If you keep going in the passage, you get down to verse 23 and 24, and uh, you can focus on verse 23 and 24. There you'll see the singularity of Christ. You see that in verse 23 and 4, and also in verse 27 and 28, they sort of go together. You, you see there the permanent work. That how Jesus Christ dying on the cross, God raising him from the dead is a permanent and powerful work. It will hold you. But those two verses set it up for verse 25 and 6. Now verse 25, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to stay there a moment. <clears throat> verse 25 is one of the most powerful, beautiful passages in the book of Hebrews. In fact, John MacArthur said that uh, this is the John 3.16 of the book of Hebrews. And here comes my third and final point, and that is we, we need to rejoice in our lives that have been saved. To rejoice in your salvation. Let me just read verse 25. Let me just read verse 25 and 26. Let's just, let's just take a look at it very quickly, and we'll come back and deal with it some. Verse 25. <clears throat> Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26, there are five beautiful, beautiful adjectives describing the Lord Jesus. It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy and innocent, and unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. I'd love to deal with all of that, but I want to Dial in real closely to verse 25. 
Let's go back to verse 25. You see the word consequently. Consequently, in other words, based on everything we just heard. Verse 25 gives us salvation, but we have a basis for our salvation. Based on everything we just talked about, the great and final priesthood of Christ and his one-time death on the cross in the place of sinners, all our hopes and joys and forgiveness and love are there. Don't walk out of here with guilt. Guilt should be killed at the cross, executed at the cross. He's able to save you. The text says in verse 25, he is able to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He's able to save to the uttermost. You have there in that phrase the power of Christianity. Christianity is not a system of behavior. Christianity is not you being nicer. Christianity is not even a religion. Christianity is the power of God that he is able to save to the uttermost. Do you see all of that? Look how far-reaching. Look how far-reaching the power of God. Look how unlimited the adequacy of Christ's saving work is. Look how wonderful it is that he's able to save no matter how far gone somebody is. You know what this does? This right here, verse 25. Hebrews 7, verse 25. This keeps us praying for all our lost causes. A lot of us here got lost causes. Sometimes it feels... It feels like that person's never going to come to Christ. This right here. This keeps us praying for all our lost causes, all of our wayward friends, all the people that we seem to know that it feels like she's too far gone. He's able. Take that verse right now. He's able to save. I want you to put a name in it. Get a person. A person. Get a person, a name in mind. A, a daughter or a son, a husband. God is, verse 25, able to save. Iston Pantales. God is able to save to the uttermost. That is to say, his power knows no limits. His life knows no end. His love knows no boundaries. That God, when he saves somebody, he saves fully and completely and wholeheartedly and comprehensively. Let me tell you something about being saved now. God didn't just save part of you. That there is no sin too far gone. There is no, there is no stain that is so dark. There is no situation so dire. There is no evil. There is no confusion that is so tangled up that is beyond the saving power of God found in Jesus. What this text says is he is able to save to the uttermost. There is nothing necessary. There's no other supplement. There's nothing else that has to happen to make the conditions right. If Christ, who achieves it by his work on the cross, it is Christ who achieves it by his work on the cross, and it is the Spirit that applies it by his power. Why do we pray for our lost loved ones? We ask God to move on them. Because salvation is one in Christ and it is applied by the Spirit. If you want to think about the Trinity and salvation, you can think about it like this, that God has planned it, 
God the Father has planned it, God the Son has secured it, and God the Spirit has applied it. God the Father has planned it, that's done. God the Son has secured it, that's done. What we're praying for is God the Spirit to apply it. The Trinity and salvation. What does this tell us? It tells us that, that this, is, this is the goodness of God found in Jesus and it can up, it, there's, there is no way to outrun this grace. You keep praying for people. I mean, this is what Jonathan Edwards, um, the great American thinker, Jonathan Edwards, he said that we bring nothing to our salvation but the sin that makes it necessary. This is what gives us hope, that it's grace. Do you know someone deep in sin? Do you know a person, you could come up with their name right now, that is in the far country? Ask God. Claim this verse. He is able to save to the uttermost. Who does he save? Look, look closely at verse 25. Who is it that God does save? He is able to save to the uttermost. Follow along, verse 25. Those who draw near to God through him. Now, the other side of this promise is that God will only save those who come to him in faith. Think of, think of salvation. We are not just saved because you believe in Jesus. Salvation is, is secured. So grace secures salvation at the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. God raised him from the dead. So salvation is won there. Your faith then appropriates what God has done. Faith appropriates salvation in your life. In other words, according to this passage, there must be a response to the gospel in order for the gospel to save. Look, this is why, um, this is why we don't baptize infants. Infant baptism came out of the Catholic Church and it had a salvific feel. The reason that, that the Catholic Church baptizes infants because there is salvation in that, in their mindset. That is we are Protestants. That means we are in protest of that. But not only that, we take another step. We don't believe in infant baptism because baptism is a, baptism is a sign of conversion. And conversion happens when you draw near to God through faith in Jesus. It comes after. Now, now, with that in mind, I want to close, I want to close with this one thought in verse 25. <clears throat> And I want you to walk out of here with it today. So just think with me for the next four or five minutes. Think about the security of salvation. See what it says in verse 25? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Take that last phrase. It is astounding. This right here is the present ministry of Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. It's going on right now on this Sunday morning. Those, think of it like this, those who he pays for, he prays for. One, one, uh, one preacher said it like this, that uh, there, is, there is no Christian alive who has not had Jesus Christ mentioned your name to God the Father. 
It is not possible that Jesus died for you and is not right now interceding for you. This should embolden us. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish preacher from the 18th century, Robert Murray McShane said, if, if you could hear Christ praying for you in the other room, you would not fear a million enemies. What, what is, so my question when I started thinking about this, what then is, what is God the Son saying to God the Father for me? What's the prayer? You search the scriptures, you don't find very much. You find a couple of places. One place you can look is in Luke chapter 22. I'll just give you the story. <clears throat> it's right before Peter denies Jesus. Jesus has told Peter, you're going to deny me. And this is what he says to Peter. Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith hold. And when you return, strengthen the brothers. What is, what is God the Son praying to God the Father? He's praying for your strength that your faith will not fail. That's what he prayed for Peter. Your faith will not fail. He, he, he prayed for, for when, you, when you do, that when you return, so let's say you do fall off, do commit some heinous sin, when you return, that you would come back. For some, of them, for some saved people that are wandering out there, God the Son is calling back. What else did he pray for Peter? That when you return, you would strengthen the brothers. He's praying that you and I would invest in one another and strengthen the fellowship of believers. Or, or if you want to, go to John chapter 17. Maybe want to do this week. This week. John chapter 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And there he prays for us. What does he pray there? He prays that, that God the Father will be glorified in our daily lives. He prays that we might be kept safe. He prays that the church would be unified in the gospel, around the gospel truth. He prays that God the Father would guard us. He prays that, that we might have complete joy in Christ. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. He prays that our sanctification would be rooted in truth. He prays that we live our lives on mission, sent out on mission. He prays that his children, you, would have a genuine sense of being loved by God in Christ. More than anything else, though, God the Son is before God the Father pleading the blood of his sacrifice. Satan accuses, and we stand accused, and rightly so, Jesus covers that with his blood. His blood that takes away our sin. We are reminded once again that we should rejoice in a promise kept. We should rejoice in a debt that is paid. I want you to rejoice in your life being saved. Do you? Do you rejoice in what God has done for you in Christ. If not, today will you run to him? Will you come to Jesus, have your sins taken away and your soul saved, your life redeemed?
come to him today. Will you join me as we pray together? With your heads bowed this morning, we prepare our hearts. I want you to hear it again. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for you. This morning we're going to close with a song that is built on this passage. The name of it is Before the Throne of God Above. For those of you that are in Christ, when it's time to sing, I want you to sing with all of your heart and sing with the joy of the Lord. For those of you that are unsure, during that song, I want you to come forward. Talk to one of our pastors about what does it mean to actually give your life to Christ? What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to draw near to God through Him? Father, thank you for the promises found in Hebrews chapter 7. Thank you that the Spirit has applied them to our hearts. Strengthen brothers and sisters in Christ and call even today, call young men and women to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand please as we sing together?